small town in America, it's the Saturday Night Special with Amy Goode. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Goode, and this is a Saturday Night Special. Startups, it seems, are absolutely everywhere, and some bill themselves as like the Uber of, you know, dry cleaning or something, and or the Airbnb of whatever, and they aren't just in Silicon Valley, right? No. Chicago, too, is filled with hopeful entrepreneurs hoping to make the next so-called unicorn company that changes the startup world and makes billions and billions of dollars and becomes something that none of us can live without. But some startups want to change the world in very, very different ways and make very different types of impact. So tonight we're talking with four local entrepreneurs who built companies specifically focused on social impact of trying to change the world for the better. We'll talk with founders who are doing this around guns and weapons, around youth and learning, around mental health, and around how the humble mushroom could change absolutely everything. And it is not because we would eat it. Indeed. So we'll be right back to get this conversation underway on 720 WGN, and we'll talk all about startups here in Chicago with social impact. Back in just a bit. 720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. So as ever, we take one big topic and we talk about it all evening. And tonight we are talking about startups here in Chicago with social impact, meaning they're doing something to change the world besides just trying to be like the next Facebook or Uber and make a ton of money and things like that. Now, these are four startups that we're talking with tonight. And it was hard to pick four because there were so many. So we may have to repeat this show every so often because there were so many cool startups that I found doing research for this program tonight. Um, but I'm the first one is really, really fascinating. This wasn't even a thing that I knew was a thing prior to meeting this founder. We talked a little bit earlier with Joanne Rodriguez. She is the founder and CEO of a company called MycoCycle, which if you know anything about mushrooms, you're like, wait a minute, I'm connecting some dots here. That's exactly right. It is about mushrooms. It is about waste. It is about environmental impact. And again, I had no idea that this thing was a thing. So let's take a listen to the conversation I had a little bit earlier today with the founder, Joanne Rodriguez. Tell us a bit about MycoCycle. MycoCycle is a startup that started working out about a year ago that would process toxins out of waste so we could recycle the materials as opposed to send them to landfill. So basically, we're using mushrooms to process toxins out of trash. And how do you even begin to do that? Well, we're developing a process. You could train fungi. Um, mycology, the, the first half of my name is myco, so mycocycle. Mycology is the study of mushrooms. And we train, train mushrooms to basically eat asphalt, as my colleagues would say. But we really train them to um, target toxins like PAH, which are cancer-causing constituent, and phthalates, and to sequester heavy metals 
apply the process on site. First, we're starting with manufacturers, and then they're going to take those materials and re-enter them into manufacturing so they can make bio-based products, so myco-materials. So we're just going to take this trash and we're going to make treasure. We want to create a, a usable and valuable byproduct. What kind of products are we talking about when you're thinking about making new things from trash? Oh my goodness. So right now you can use mushrooms as an alternative to many things and myco materials. You're seeing them in leather look products out on the West Coast. There's a company called Myco Works and they develop materials, leather look materials and fabric, styrofoam. So plastics are being replaced place in packaging with micro-materials. There was just an article that came out about IKEA using micro-materials in packaging. There's no reason why it can't be used in furniture. Uh, other types of fabrics are actually being used. I believe Puma is using them in their tennis shoes. I, I wouldn't think it would be something that would be that durable. We think about mushrooms doing work and waste materials, and we think about really just kind of one step away unprocessed recycled materials often. You know, we think about melting a plastic thing, turning it into a new plastic thing. But this is much more involved, and, and what you're describing sounds very durable and sustainable. It is very durable and sustainable, and there's the whole over in Europe, because, you know, they're always more advanced than we are. There's a whole industry about mycotexture, so the development of building materials that can be used architecturally, like building blocks and styrofoam products. So my background, I come from the, the roofing and building materials industry, and this is how we discovered a gap in in service, we discovered that we could not divert our roofing material waste once it was coated with asphalt from landfill. It had to go to landfill or be incinerated, which both are really dirty processes. It'll take three to 400 years for it to break down in a landfill. So to think about a way that we could process it that would have a, an environmental impact, we wouldn't be putting more materials in landfill. If you think about where landfills are, they're not in the high rent districts. And so there's a social and environmental justice piece there, but that we would but also then be able to take this and maybe return it to a roofing or building material product like an insulation board or a spray foam um, insulation. There, there are many uses for it when it comes off the roof to go back to the roof, in fact, but it could go into many other different types of materials as well. That's so fascinating. What was the origin of this company and how did it, how did it get, or even this process, how did that first get started? Well, I worked for a manufacturer for 16 years. I was director of sustainability for them. And I just, like I said, I saw this gap in technology in the, in the way that we can actually process and produce materials cleaner. And I was burned out. I was tired of being in the industry. I'd been one of the only women for a long time. And I said, I, I need some time. But in that, I had a, a woman that worked for me, and she had a background in bioremediation and phytoremediation, using plants to break down contaminated soil. And so we've seen plant clean up soils and contaminated spills for a long time. And it got me to thinking about why can't we do it on materials? So I started, I took a sabbatical, took six months to shake the testosterone off, right, and <laughs> think about what this world might need. And it took me into my college. And I got connected with Peter McCoy, who is my science director out of Portland. He has done a lot of work around mycoremediation, so using fungi to clean up toxins. And he felt like I felt that we could close the loop in manufacturing and send the byproducts of the process back in the manufacturing to create new materials. 
It's so fascinating. And I think when we think about uh, recycling, when we think about reusing materials and repurposing them, and this is next level stuff that I don't think most people are even thinking about. I don't think it's on a lot of radars. So what is the thing in the sustainability, in, in manufacturing, in recycling, in conversations around those, when you start telling people what you do, what is the misconception or that piece that's missing of the conversation that you run into again and again? One, we, we tend to vilify mushrooms. We're just like, oh, I don't like eating mushrooms, so gross. Or, oh my God, it's, if it can break this down, it's going to go everywhere and it's going to be like this giant killer mushroom eating everything, right? But also, could you make money? And that happens with a lot of these carbon mitigation startups and with these environmental impacts. We are not just here to develop programs of rainbows and unicorns. We're here to develop a more sustainable society. And there is a lot of money in that. You can control this process, you can train nature to do what you need it to do, and you can also make money. It can be very fiscally rewarding, and it puts us in a position within the economy to then do greater good, not just make money for money's sake, but also to have a societal and environmental benefit. And that's really kind of the theme that we're talking about tonight and thinking about with this program is is really all about, you know, we've, we see so many startups, some have crashed and burned, some have been great, some have not, some have done lots of things, some have done damage, right? And and we think about leaders, especially in the tech space, and this one is really looking at startups locally that are focused on that social impact and focus on changing something for the better, changing the world in a positive way. So my question to you then is, in your mind, what is the big thing that you most hope to accomplish in the broader social impact sense with this company? Well, I hope to inspire more citizen science. I I hope to see more women take that leap of faith and and to really say, okay, this is a crazy idea, but it could work. Like everything's a crazy idea until you try to make it work. So kind of putting yourself out there for risk. And I think women in particular need to step out of that box that that we need to be more safe and more secure and, you know, not not go out there. And I I think that that's probably a huge, huge thing for me. I don't mean to make it gender based, but men never really have to think about that. You know, there's no apologies there for women to do a startup and to implement an idea that is based in the environment that has a societal good and a social justice side. It seems to be a natural fit. It seems to make sense to me. And I hope that that changes the dynamic. I hope how we fund startups change too, because only 2% of startups with women as founders get funded currently. Which is a number we, we really need to, to examine. We need to look at that and we need to make yeah. some change there. That's not, uh, that's not, that's not going to work. That's not going to work for the long haul. Okay, so where can people go to find out more about your company and the work that you're doing? Well, they can go to um, microcycle.com. Uh, we've had a lot of great things going on um, June 18th. You actually could register to attend the demo day for the fifth cohort of Latinx, which is going to be at 1871. It's hosted by the International Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. There are 12 startups in there. So, you know, shout out to all, all of those. And a few of those companies also are based 
in um, social good as part of their startup model. So if you look up Cohort 5 Latinx, you'll see the information about that, information about the founders, which will include me. And follow my Twitter at Green Girl Now. I'm updating that pretty frequently when we get good news. And then really for the basics around mycology and mycoremediation, I recommend Peter McCoy's book, Radical Mycology. It's an 800-plus page manifesto around mushroom mycology, the power of mushrooms, you know, he's a real fascinating individual and I'm lucky to be aligned with him in this program. This is the conversation that I had earlier today with Joanne Rodriguez, who's the founder and CEO of a MycoCycle. Again, uh, Vivian, did you know, have you, have you even heard of the, I had not. I have not. Heard you, of I, the Myco, my, well, I'm sorry, mycoremediation, mycoremediation, and then phytoremediation, which is using plants or mushrooms to May, to remediate, to to mitigate damage to soil and to redo crops, thing, or crops, redo yeah. materials and turn them back. I mean, I was like... How amazing is that? What? I was like, who are you? <laughs> I was I was blown away by this cool thing that she did. And I loved yeah. that she was just like, I'm just going to go for it. She was working, as she said, she was working in, in building materials. And she said, you know what? There's a gap here. We can't recycle these things once they're coated in certain things like asphalt. I can do better. I, can, I, I, I see this. And that is, I think, a theme that we're going to see tonight. Absolutely. Uh, I, I had a conversation, uh, another one earlier today that I, that I needed to tape with one of the last founders that we're going to hear from tonight. And, and he, same thing. He's like, you know what? I saw this, this gap in the market and I knew this is something I could do to be impactful. So I think that's mm-hmm. a theme we're going to hear a lot about tonight. So we need more people like Joanne in this world. And, you know, she brought up something really interesting I think we could do a whole other show about. And that was how 2% of companies led by women, of startups led by women, founded by women, get funded. 2%. Wow. That is nothing. Nothing. 2% is a little, psh, that's a psh, is what that is. We got a psh. Could we got to do could, better than that. Could we possibly say, just possibly, there's still discrimination? I mean, maybe. Just, just you know, just a just a just a little just a scotch. Sm- yeah, just, just a little smidge. It's like, smidge. Eh, I mean, uh, how many women are on corporate boards? Uh, or the number know, of women represented on corporate boards? It's still not anywhere close to being what? No, four or five percent. Oh, if I, uh, of the of the Fortune five hundred, if that. Yeah, and if here's that. what happens. Here's why that matters. It's not just because hey, we we should be splitting things. Here's why it matters. When you're a little kid, when you're a little girl, and you and you don't see yourself grown up doing a thing you want to do, you think, I can't do it. It doesn't occur to you that you can. Right. Or if you go to work at, at a place when you are, you know, beginning your career and you only see one woman at the top, you're like, okay, well, there's only room for one of us. That And so it's not about like people go, oh, women are so catty. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. If we only see one spot, what do you expect? What do right. you want? Not that I think, you know, cattiness is okay, but it's like, it's hard to... It's women. It is... African Americans, it is Latinos, it is Asians. Uh, it's we we still have a mindset um, at work in this country that doesn't quite match the words that we often use <laughs> when we talk about we the people. Right. It's sort of like we the people like. Except Except for maybe, maybe not, not you, you specifically. <laughs> maybe not you. Because you, you don't you. exactly yeah. look like me, as in we. 
Right. And I think, I mean, represent, we could do a whole other show on just on representation because I think that, that really, really matters. I mean, 2019 is the first time in Hollywood where they had a successful sort of blockbuster Hollywood film with a predominantly or almost all Asian cast. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, this could be a whole other show. In fact, we should make it a whole other show. We next week, I think next week there's a ball game. Whatever week we're back when there's not White Sox at night, we're doing that. That's see these topics come up. All these shows are like interrelated because these topics come up when we take this one big topic. And tonight the topic is Chicago startups with social impact. When we come back, we're switching gears from mushrooms to AI and weapons. I'm going to help you make sense of that because I'm going to I need to make sense of it, too. So more of that here in just a bit on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. That's a rock and jam there, Vivian. Yes, it is. <laughs> nice. <laughs> gotta wake up, everybody. That's right, because we got some <laughs> things to discuss. Yes, we do. Here's what's happening. Oh, by the way, it's seven twenty, and this is Amy Guth, and it's the Saturday night special. So tonight, as ever, we pick one theme and we we talk about it all evening long. And that tonight is Chicago startups with social impact. And so we have a very special guest in studio with us right now. We're joined by Sunny Tai, who is the fa- sorry co-founder and CEO of Aegis AI. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I came at the 11th hour. I yeah, didn't expect zipped to on uh, in be here. on here. <laughs> yeah, zipped on in. I appreciate you. So, you know, once we get an idea, we just start like casting our nets to bring in people. So so tell people about Aegis AI and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, take, I had to take my headphones off because I was uh, hearing my voice and uh, <laughs> it was throwing me off a little bit. So uh, what Aegis AI does is we build computer vision software that automatically identifies gun threats in existing security camera feeds. So um, before we started building this company, we talked to law enforcement officers across the country. I'm talking all the way down from patrol officer patrolling the streets, all the way high as chief and deputy chief. And we asked them, what is your biggest pain point? when it comes to gun violence response. And almost unanimously, they told us it's a lack of timely and accurate information. They told us that these 911 dispatchers absolutely starve for information. When there's a shooting, people have no idea where the shooter is, what he's armed with, how many shooters there are, is a shooter in body armor, what the shooter looks like. If you take the Parkland shooting, for example, as a case study, um, the police, the Coral Springs Police Department, only figured out what the shooter looked like seven minutes and 30 seconds after the first round was discharged. And by then, Nicholas Cruz was actually gone mm-hmm. two minutes, like two minutes ago, he left campus and already done perpetrating his act. Yeah. So our objective is to use software to automatically provide this real-time intelligence to building security so that it can feed this very accurate real-time intelligence to law enforcement and also have the information at hand to uh, better initiate their emergency defensive procedures. And and how do you even begin to do that? I mean, in, in its simplest terms, that seems, how, how do you use security feeds to, to identify a weapon? So what we do is uh, we have built an AI algorithm that employs computer vision um, to very accurately uh, I estimate the probability of a certain object existing in frames in existing videos. So what we did was we trained this proprietary algorithm on um, over initially over 30,000, now over 50,000. Now now it's over 50,000 
50,000 frames that replicate what a, a real-life security camera would see when there's a gun crime being perpetrated. So uh, we collected this training data in multiple different ways. Uh, the first thing we did was um, we tried to scrape the internet. We tried to go to Bing Images and Google Images and download a bunch of images of people holding guns. But we found that this data set is basically, it's, it's almost useless because it doesn't replicate what a security camera would see in a real life, um, in, in real life kind of crime scene being perpetrated. So we started scraping, uh, the internet, YouTube and live leaks. Um, we scraped in four different languages for maximum diversity of data. Um, and we we really cut these we cut these videos of and a security so you got camera. you got videos of of actual crimes uh, yes at that yes point. Okay. yes so we cut them into frames and we selected the best frames for data science uh, training purposes then we train our algorithm off of that and that really gets us about eighty percent um accurate performance to really augment that we also had to create our own training data and what that means is um my family actually lives in Austin Texas now. Uh, where gun laws are actually not as strict. So we actually went on the streets and we took airsoft guns with, and painted over over the orange tip. And uh, it's not just myself, but also my family helped out some of our neighbors. And we took a lot of footage, um, climbing on top of the ladder, uh, getting different angles, distances, lighting conditions, weather conditions, and really created a lot of additional data to um, augment the areas where we felt like detection wasn't working as well. Hmm, so a combination of those two things. And the third part is, um, as we get more and more customers as well, we typically do what is called a walkthrough, which means we would implement the system under existing security cameras. And obviously, they want to test and see, does this work? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> they will come in either with local law enforcement or we'll come in with our fake guns. Again, airsoft guns, orange to paint it over. Um, and we'll walk through to trigger the system every single time. And we'll collect those frames and also retrain a model as well. So... Through those three mechanisms, really, we were able to build a computer vision model that was exceptionally accurate, um, well over 99% accuracy within the first five seconds. And we did a slight close, close to 100% within the first 10 seconds. That's so fascinating. What, what made you decide this is the company that you wanted to start? This is the, this is my favorite, <laughs> my favorite question because I, I have a pretty interesting life story. Um, so my background is uh, I was born in Taiwan, okay. but I grew up in South Africa. And uh, I grew up in South Africa from 1992 to 1999. And South Africa was going through this transition um, from the apartheid regime to the post-apartheid regime. And a lot of the racial tensions actually just boiled over. And as a result, there was, there was actually a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of gun violence. So even to this day, um, I think statistically speaking, South Africa is better now, but still ranks in the top 10 in terms of gun homicides per capita. So um, this is something that's impacted people that we knew. One of my mom's closest friends, Linda, she's personally been carjacked five or six times as a tour guide. Um, armed men at AK-47s will hold her up um, and rob her of her t- uh, tour, uh, tour guide van. And even worse, uh, one of our close family friends who published a Chinese-language newspaper in South Africa was fatally shot in his own home in a home intrusion. So that was 20 years ago in 1999. And that prompt- prompted my mother to decide that she wanted to take a leap of faith and immigrate to, to a safer country. Um, it was always a dream of hers to come to the United States. So she took a job that paid $12 an hour on H-1B visa. We immigrated to the United States. We're lucky enough to be able to stay in the country. Um, in 2004, I got my green card, enlisted in the Marine Corps. In 2008, 
um, was lucky enough to become a U.S. citizen and applied to be a Marine Corps officer. So served as a Marine Corps officer from 2009 to 2013 um, on active duty, deployed to Afghanistan in 2012, um, acquired some expertise in anti-terrorism and force protection. So it's very much related to mm-hmm. some of the things that we talk to our clients about. Um, but ultimately, I wanted to return to something that I've always been super passionate about. One of them is starting my own business, but had a lot of dumb ideas my friends laughed at. <laughs> the other one was um, the issue of gun violence. Mm-hmm. So after I graduated from business school, I went to do management consulting for for two years. Um, but then uh, the, the, the trigger was really a Las Vegas shooting mm-hmm. um, in late 2017. I thought to myself, you know, why is it that the most innovative country in the world isn't innovating to solve this issue that claims almost 13,000 gun homicides per year? Um, I decided I was going to do something. I honestly didn't know what it was that I could do. I didn't know where to start. So I decided to attend a train called Run, Hide, Fight. And there's various variations of that. Um, a lot of them just call, a lot of schools call them just simple lockdown procedures, but there's kind of various different permutations. Um, but the instructor was actually a career law enforcement officer. And I was exchanging thoughts with him. And he said to me, you know, I wish all the security cameras at this school could automatically identify gun threats and provide us information to law enforcement in real time. This would help us so much. So I did some research, found that computer vision algorithms are increasingly deployed in a variety of use cases that are very interesting. For example, like helping farmers identify where crops are poorly irrigated, Mm -hmm. uh, identifying cancerous cells and MRI images, or more, even more controversially, um, helping department defense increase the accuracy of drone strikes. Um, I also found some research papers written by PhDs that theorized it was possible to use this technology to mitigate uh, the gun violence threat by installing this on existing security cameras. So uh, I found that no, also nobody had built a credible product to this point. So at the time, I was living in Austin to spend more time with my family. Moved back to Chicago because I uh, attended school here, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, but also University of Chicago, and um, decided to start building this. And one of the first people I came across, very fortunately, um, when you build a startup, it's all about team. Mm -hmm. So um, very fortunately, I solicited advice about raising money from somebody who is actually currently still in business school at my alma mater, the University of Chicago. His name is Ben Giomek. And wanted to get his advice on, like, if I have a cool idea, like, how can I get investors to pay me attention? So I invited him out for coffee and a 30-minute coffee chat turned to three hours mm-hmm. and we just hit it off and i saw him dropping hints he was like yeah if you want me to help out let me know and his background was just incredible um he led large teams of data scientists and ai engineers at microsoft um really building out the first ai powered sales motion at microsoft possibly the first one in fortune 500 uh, he built this brand new business unit from zero to 110 million dollars in revenues um he had a public service background like i did his parents were both uh, state department diplomats lived all over the country um he's a white guy who spoke chinese and i speak chinese fluently because i'm from taiwan so we just hit it off right off the bat and he had all these skills that i felt like i wasn't as strong as mm-hmm. at so um Invited him to start working together, and over the course of three months, um, it was able to convince him to hop on full time. And since last May, in 2018, we formally incorporated a company and started working together uh, full time. So we've been at this together for for a year now. We've been kind of making some pretty impressive and 
fast growing progress thus far. Uh, I can dive into it, but I felt like I've already taken so much of my uh, your time with that one question. So <laughs> that's uh, it. well fascinating. It's, we're going to take a little break here and say, but when we come back, I want to yeah. know about that. That sounds like a very uh, a very uh, moment of fate with that coffee. It sounds like a lot of yes. things led up to this coffee for both of you. It sounds very very interesting. All right, we're talking with Sunny Tai, who is the co-founder and CEO of Aegis AI. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation here on 720 WGN. WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. We cannot wait a minute, is what we cannot do, <laughs> because we're here. We're talking with Sunny Tai, who is the CEO and co-founder of Aegis AI. And this is such an enthralling story. I feel like I was late going to break because this is so interesting, all the things you're talking about and this, all these life events that led up to this very uh, fateful coffee with your, with your partner uh, in the company. And so right before the break, we were talking about kind of what's happened since then, since May, when you, when you got rolling. What have been the the big milestones and, and things that have happened since then? Uh, so the way that everything got started, um, so in May, Ben and I started working together, and we were thinking to ourselves, "Well, shoot, we got to hire engineers." Um, so I started digging through my network, and one uh, the first person we hired was this guy. I mean, we just keep running to great talent, and sometimes sometimes I just think to myself, like building startups really takes a village, and really takes. Um, people who believe in your mission and what you're doing to come work for you. And, you know, part of it really started with our first employee. His name is Jacob Weiss. He's actually uh, from Lincoln Park area, but now he lives in Seattle because his girlfriend took a job there. But he, at the time, he was a fresh grad, 23 years old. And we connected to him uh, through an alum from our school who graduated in 1993. And he's been mentoring us a little bit, Kyle Wang. And, and I told him we need an engineer. We can't pay that much. And he introduced us uh, to, to this kid who's an absolute wonderkind. I mean, Jacob, he studied Chinese literature in, so we have three Chinese speakers on our team. I'm, I'm the only Asian, by the way. Um, he studied Chinese literature in undergrad, then got a master's degree in computer science from Washington St. Louis and got a 4.0, graduating number one in his class. That's how smart he is. So we brought him as our first hire. Um, at the time, was paying him out of pocket. So couldn't, couldn't really afford to pay him that yeah. much. But he was totally fine with it because he really believed in what we're doing. Uh, and also brought on a data scientist, uh, Tung, who really helped us. Um, he had a PhD in applied math. Again, another... So you're all a bunch of slackers is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm probably the biggest slacker out of the, the four of us. I'm not saying this jokingly. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, brought on an engineer, a data scientist, yeah. and really started building out uh, kind of a, an MVP. Yeah. Um, so we started talking to educators. We started talking to uh, more law enforcement leaders and really getting their input on whether they will find us useful. Um, by... About September or October time frame, we started getting some of our first pilots in. So yeah. it was a private school in Chicago. They actually asked us not to disclose uh, their names sure. uh, to the media. But um, we got a pilot up and running, and they seemed to absolutely love the proof of concept. At the time, we were also enrolled in this accelerator called the Metaprop Accelerator. It's run by New York uh, Real Estate Technology VC. Mm-hmm. And they gave us $50,000 of funding. It's not very much, but enables to kind of catch our breath a little bit. Yeah, when you're we're at the point of paying your engineer out of pocket, I think oh, yes. every penny helps. I actually I actually overdrafted a few months ago. That's <laughs> that's how embarrassing it got. But um, things are actually going well now. But uh, with, the, with the credibility and momentum from Metaprop Accelerator yeah. and our one pilot at a private school in Chicago, we're able to actually put together a pre-seed round of funding mm-hmm. of $285,000, cobbling together friends and family, 
angels, accelerator mm-hmm. funding, um, and whatnot. Um, very interestingly, one of the um, people who rose, the, one of the groups that rose the biggest check um, was a group that was a first investor in ClassPass. So we always used to brag about that because ClassPass is obviously a unicorn. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that closed in December. And we're thinking to ourselves, okay, you know, this company can continue operating for maybe a year. And maybe um, towards Q3 2019, we would start raising an actual seed round. Yeah, yeah. Wrong. Oh, no, just kidding. <laughs> no, wrong, wrong, as in, uh, wrong as in good. Yeah. So the Metaprop Accelerator ended in February. <clears throat> and um, by, by, by the February timeframe, we had onboarded eight other pilots. So at the time, we have nine pilots. The private All school- schools? Us, schools, corporate customers, a bank in Tunisia that reached out to us because they were robbed twice yeah. in a month, <laughs> um, <clears throat> property managers and whatnot. And a school actually signed a paid contract as yeah. well. So things were actually starting to go well. Um, well, I mean, it's like good news, bad news, right? Like the more we see gun violence stories, the more we, you know, have the, these moments in which these horrific things happen in our schools and our workplaces, mm-hmm. like the one that just happened in Aurora yes. a few months ago. I think that's on people's minds. I mean, I've even seen mm-hmm. people starting to look into like um, workplace disaster insurance yes. Yes. to pay for funerals and tragic things like that. So I think people are thinking about this kind of stuff and you, you've you've struck at the right time, it seems. Um, people say that a lot that we've struck at the right time, but unfortunately, over the past twenty or thirty years in the United States, it, it's it's all it's always the right time, That's right? Fair. Yeah. And one thing I find is that very unfortunately, there's a lot of companies in this space that are just looking to make a quick buck, mm-hmm. um, and they're sort of unscrupulous about it. Obviously, I won't drop names, but we've been kind of discouraged by seeing some of the other players in the industry uh, who would use very. Uh, they'll use messaging techniques such as, okay, this is something a tragedy that just happened. You should have had our product. And that's oh, not yeah. that's obviously not the approach that we want to take. We want to position ourselves as a company of a transparency, as a company of integrity. And we're just a group of passionate people that want to make a little bit of a difference, move the needle a little bit in terms of mitigating on mm-hmm. the gun violence epidemic. Mm-hmm. And we believe that we can do well by doing good. Yeah, and that's one little area. <clears throat> and so essentially it would be if your technology detects a weapon moving into a space, it would be able to alert law enforcement and get pictures and and give people a sense of where the person is, what they look like, what they have. Is that is that kind of the gist of it? Yes, except um, we actually don't forward these feeds directly to law enforcement for several reasons. Uh, the first one is we have to build integrations with all these law enforcement departments, which is obviously very it's super bureaucratic, sure. um, time and resource consuming, which we can't do right now. Um, another reason is <clears throat> we were actually told by our very first customers that they want to handle the alerts themselves. Mm-hmm. They want to be responsible for notifying law enforcement and processing the alerts. So obviously we want to respect those wishes. Sure. Um, so we forward this directly to the institution security team and this depends like the deployment depends on whether it's a uh, the type of customer it is whether it's a school customer or corporate mm-hmm. customer for a corporate customer a lot of times they have a security operations center yeah um i've toured some of them it's like two allied universal security guards trying to watch 400 cameras at the same time basically impossible in those instances we would surface up the feeds that have a high probability of being a threat so they can take immediate action without trying to see everything at once. Mm-hmm. For school deployments, it's a little bit different because obviously most schools and school districts don't have an SOC. So we'll forward uh, notifications, whether by text message or email, to the school superintendent, principal, director of facilities, 
and or director of security, if applicable, yeah. or potentially a school resource officer. So those are various stakeholders who receive the alerts. They'll be able to see the, the frame yeah. in a box drawn around perceived threat and either dismiss the threat or take immediate action on, on top of that. And, and what, <clears throat> what would that time frame be? So, so your system detects a potential threat. When does that text message go? Uh, less than a second. And we've well, tested right away. It. Yes, we tested it many times. Um, uh, like I alluded to earlier, when we when we go to a customer and do an implementation, do an integration, they obviously want to see that this works. Especially mm-hmm. when, um, if something were to go down, lives lives would be at stake. Sure. Um, this is something that we cannot mess up. So we do a walkthrough. We take um we take weapons and we we trigger yeah. the, the system every single time. Fake weapons. Fake weapons. Yeah. Yes. And, well, in certain instances, real weapons. Okay. So sometimes they have uh, a security guard or school resource officer on staff. They have their service weapon. They'll mm-hmm. put it in condition four, which means no round in chamber, yeah. uh, no magazine, and will trigger the system and they'll see that they'll get their alerts right away as yeah. soon as uh, a weapon is drawn. Wow, yes. really fascinating. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Where can people go to find out more about your organization? So uh, our website is www.aegissystems.ai. So A-E-G-I-S systems.ai. Um, we also got uh, about... Two weeks ago, um, a, a small mention in an Associated Press article, which we're pretty proud of, uh, that was syndicated nationally through New York Times, Washington Post, and whatnot. So if you look for us in the news, you might uh, see a few me- few mentions here or there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to be on the show. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate you coming in. So for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'll be sure and tweet that link out that he just mentioned. And it'll be on the show page once the podcast is posted at WGMRadio.com. Sunny Tai, co-founder and CEO of Aegis AI. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break, get you the news, all that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hello there. It's Amy Guth, and this is the Saturday Night Special. And as ever, we take one big old topic and we talk about it all evening long. And that topic tonight is we're talking about Chicago-based startups and nonprofits doing some cool thing in the social impact space. And we have so many interesting people. I'm, my mind is blown just in the first half of the show by how much stuff I have learned. I have to go process all this. And I have a feeling the second hour of the show is going to be exactly the same, the exact same way. We're joined now by Letitia Zwickert. She is the founder and CEO of a company called Mentee. Welcome to the program. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming. And well, tell us about your company and what it is that you do. Menti is an organization that is, as you said, a nonprofit in Chicago area, focuses on CPS, immigrant and refugee high school students, and it connects them with adult mentors uh, with similar backgrounds and gives them experiences in variety of workspaces and jobs that normally they would not have the opportunity to have. That's such a cool mission that you have. How did you come to found this and what was the story leading up to this idea? I'm a second career high school teacher, so full-time, so I do mentee on the side. This uh, passion has really grown in my life, looking through the varying experiences that I have within international relations and my cross-cultural communication experiences, but my own life experiences beyond academia. So 
I look at those the journey as one that unfolded in a very hectic way, nothing linear, and came to um, me trying to find ways of giving back, um, of trying to find ways of providing some kind of uh, return for what I felt I've given in my gotten in my life. Um, in as an educator, there's a variety of ways that you can have an impact on the students you have, but I have had global experiences that have allowed me to realize that there's so much more that I could do. Um, some of those are my Fulbright experiences. And with my Fulbright experience, having gone overseas, I was the first K-12 educator to receive a Fulbright Schumann Scholar Award. I worked with immigrant refugee youth uh, what, during the 2016 refugee crisis. Mm. And the the idea there was to find best practices in education. Um, I often took off my hat and I often sat down and tried to share information. And I came away with all of the experiences and all the research I did realizing that there was such a parallel in our experience in Chicago and the experiences in the countries, the very countries that I, I worked in. So much of that, when I came back, needed to come out in some form and it came out in mentee. It came out in a way that I knew I could connect people who had resources with those who needed help and support. And so mentee is really an idea that was long in coming. Um, and it, it literally, about a year and a half ago, was a baby that I had to have. Mm-hmm. I didn't sleep afterwards for a very, very long time. And all of the That's a theme that, on the show tonight. No. A lot of people not sleeping. <laughs> I think, you know, I think anyone who is an entrepreneur understands that. Um, and more so, when it's coming out of a very passionate place in your heart, there's nothing you can do but do that. Mm-hmm. So I really, I, you know, focusing in on what I could do, coming back from my Fulbright experience, having become a BMW responsible leader with the BMW Foundation, a variety of different connections, I knew that there were people who cared who wanted to give back, and I needed to find how I could best facilitate that for, my, for, the, for the youth mm-hmm. in Chicago. I had read a magazine article. Chicago Magazine had an article on what they dubbed Refugee High, Sullivan High School. And I asked my principal if I could go visit them. And for a city that lacks libraries, welcoming immigrants is an additional challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sullivan High School was building the first welcoming um, center in their high school um, for uh, immigrants and refugees, and they were doing that in their library. Um, The old library wasn't used, and it was in really poor condition. This whole experience of meeting the students, seeing that experience of their condition and what they were going to be welcoming both the students and the families into, I felt like I needed to do more. And that sparked this whole ripple effect of what became Manti. Mm. Wow, it sounds Mm -hmm. like a very moving process. What was the timeline when when you first started? So here you were working with the 2016 uh, refugee crisis, and then that seems like a pretty short timeline to have all this implemented and up and running. Well, so 2016, I was uh, work, I was living uh, overseas, and I came back and did more work with the, um, as a Transatlantic Corps group member with the BMW Foundation as a responsible leader in 2017. And then uh, after that, that's my experience with Sullivan High and a lot of variety of different kinds of challenges that CPS was going through. And those all combined to create Mentee last January. So this past year has been the pilot year for Mentee. 
um, Metis kickoff was last October. It kicked off at the University of Chicago. Uh, Clerk Valencia was there to, to give us the send-off and a lot of very inspirational talk for my young mentees. Mm-hmm. Um, and the program then uh, has been this past academic year. That's a lot in a short amount of time, but it sounds very, very cool. We are talking right now with Letitia Zwickert. She is the founder and CEO of Mentee. You can go to Mentee, M-E-N-T-E-E, MenteeChicago.org, and you can read more. But stick around. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, more of this conversation with Letitia. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. As ever, we take one big topic and we talk about it all evening. And that topic tonight, we're talking about Chicago startups and nonprofits in the social impact space. And we have been talking with Letitia Zwickert, who is the founder and CEO of Mentee. She's here in studio with us, hanging out, talking about all the things. Well, this, I, I have so many follow questions. I feel like we need another hour and a half to have this whole conversation of all the things. Um, but with the work that you're doing with, with these students in CPS, um, what is the piece of the narrative that gets lost the most? Or what is the thing that you wish more people understood about your students? Or, or, you know, I'm sure there's, I feel like every founder has this one thing they hear over and over again that either drives them crazy or drives them to do more or or kind of pushes them forward. What is that thing for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, I I challenge you to think back to when you were a teenager. Oh, God. I don't want to. Right away, we feel (laughs) awkward, uncomfortable. Awkward Um, ground zero. Oh, absolutely. And we don't want to do it. But if you if you did and you thought about it, you know, you were really struggling with identity issues. For sure. I want you to imagine then that your parents rip you out of your school, rip you out of your community, and you're brought on a long journey somewhere else. And you're brought in in this on this journey with your parents because of reasons that are happening back home. It might be that there's war. There might be government instability, economic, severe economic problems, oppression of your own religion or beliefs. Um, it might be because of climate change and more and more up to we're going to see this by 2030, an enormous increase of migrants because of climate change reasons. So we think about the Syrian war starting because of, of drought and severe climate change issues. And you, you're a student, you're this, this young person, your parents are pulling you to a new place and they're doing it because they have hope for you, because they want better life for you and they want opportunity for you. Every single one of my mentees talk about the American dream. As an educator in the western suburbs, my students never talk about the American dream. It's just there. Mm-hmm. It's something they're born with. It's something that for them is a given. But my mentee students talk about it as a live thing, a living thing. Their parents talk about it. Their parents often remind them that there are expectations that there's expectations for success for them. And as you are a high school student still struggling with your own identity, moving into a new school, not knowing the language, not knowing the system, you are put in a very challenging place. All of those issues weigh heavily on you. You also are, in addition to that, dealing with home issues. You have two different worlds. You go home and you have your home country. You have this other culture. You have another language. And you have the challenge of trying to balance this tension between your home life and your school life 
and the pressures for success and the pressures to fit in as an adolescent. And this is where others need to come in and provide that support and give a guiding hand and act as mentors and give resources and share their network because mm. it's so easy for us to do. Sure. And then not to mention, I'm sure some of the students you're interacting with have seen some degree of trauma in their lives. And that was probably what prompted their family's departure. So much so. And so in, in terms of me looking at what mentee is, mentee is beyond that mission statement. Mm -hmm. It's looking at how I can help the whole student. I partnered with Haskare in Chicago um, because I know mentee can't be everything. First of all, mentee is me. Right. <laughs> and so the capacity is is, is a bit limited if, if I only were to, to journey out with this mission myself. But Haskare supports the mental health of, of my students. And that idea is that these students have come with a lot of trauma and have, have come with special needs for support. But that, that whole component, and frankly often is a taboo in their culture, is something that is not holding them back. They are still moving forward. And that's something that is for, for an adult to, to witness as my mentors witness and, and give the feedback to me all the time is so moving and so inspiring that I will tell you the experience of mentee is not only a reward for the mentees themselves, but the mentors who are part of this journey with us, yeah. learning the stories of each individual student and then being able to whatever they can do to help support them. What is the, the, the pie in the sky in your mind? It, you know, years down the road, everything goes according to plan, if not even better. What, what does that look like? For me, I see mentee helping all students in the Chicago area and beyond. Right now, I'm focused on two schools, and I would very much like to be helping many more students who need this help. I'm the only one doing this kind of work with immigrants and refugees in the city. When I look at what else I can do, there's so much more. Everyone who's been attracted to Mentee's mission has a, has a wealth of resources. We're all, we're all these beautiful lights that can just help light other lights and give incredible guidance and, and feedback and support without feeling like anything is taken away from us. And so in order to do that, I think there's a lot of different things that could be built forward. Um, like an event that I'm building for next year, which could be something that's continual, not only in Chicago, but beyond. That's a lot, but, but it sounds very rewarding. I'm sure a lot of people listening are wondering, okay, what can I do? How do I support this? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the questions I have there are, how do people get involved? Who do you most need uh, to, to be part of your organization? And, and what does that entail when someone's volunteering or helping out or supporting in some way? What, what, do, what do you need from them? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, if, if, if you're not helping through Mentee, I hope you have another local organization that you can help through. Um, so the first idea for me is think, think within yourself and what is it that you have a capacity to do? We all have enormous capacity. We don't always know where to go. And so I, I, you know, I'd say reach out to local organizations and see how you can be helpful. If you are in, in a in a place where you feel like you can you can either mentor or partner, um, that would be outstanding. Mentorship uh, is a possibility through application process on my on my website. Um, partnership 
you know, contact me. My my email is Letitia at MenteeChicago.org. Uh, feel free to reach out. And those types of things, simply acting in partner with other organizations that then can fulfill a larger picture and larger needs and things of capacity I can't always mm-hmm. tackle on my own Sure, um, would be very, very useful. I also work on a national and international scale. So my concept for me is naturally the immigrant refugee community is global. And I've partnered with United Nations, AAOC, and IOMUN with their Plural Plus program and working to build this kind of reinforcement of international migrant voice. So those who are on the national or international world and platform through education or migrant work, I I would love for more partners uh, to reach out so that we can build more programs, again, like the one I'm developing next year, which is a global youth leadership challenge in Chicago. That sounds interesting. You have my attention at that. That sounds very cool. All right. Well, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and share links to everything that you just mentioned. Make sure that you, you know, everyone knows where to find you, all those good things. Um, How many, so you said there's two schools. How many students are you working with right now? So I have 20, 25 mentees and 25 mentors. Okay. Yes. The, that process is a year long. Um, they have a workshop in the beginning and in the end that are both with their mentees and mentors, and then a mid-year workshop, their professional development, their pieces that you and I would have loved to have that talk about professional communication and dressing for success. But beyond that, personal stories from individuals who they themselves are migrants who mm-hmm. come to this country, who've been successful and who have a journey and a story to tell students students of of every walk of life thrive on hearing other people's journeys because they're told what do you want to do in your life and you just don't know how to get there or Mm -hmm. you might not even know what that looks like and hearing other people's journeys makes it real but when particularly you're challenged as an immigrant and refugee and knowing all of the varying hoops you have to jump through and system you don't understand hearing from other individuals who have made it through motivates you lifts you up helps you make it through high school one in three immigrants in this country do not have a high school diploma they need to hear that others have made it they need the hand to hold them sometimes to lift them up and they need to know that there are people willing to support them in a variety of ways to get them post-secondary to places where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, again, the website is menteeschicago.org. You can go there. You can read all the things, figure out how to get involved, all that. Letitia Zwickert, thank you so much for being with us tonight and telling us about this wonderful organization. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break, get you to news, all that good stuff. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. Well, tonight we have been talking about Chicago startups with social impact. We've heard from, I I mean, I've been enthralled tonight. I've met, I feel like I've just met so many very smart people, talked to them about unbelievably cool things that they're doing that are really just making such an impact here in the city uh, and and everywhere, really. These are really you know, really important things. So uh, our next guest, I spoke to a little bit earlier, I talked to him by phone and and recorded this. He super busy doing lots of things. Uh, But I talked with Danny Freed, and he is the uh, the founder and CEO of a company called Blueprint Health that's working in the mental health space. So so I, I spoke with him today. Let's take a listen. Tell me a bit about Blueprint. So Blueprint is basically the easiest way for behavioral health providers uh, to practice measurement-based care. Um, 
I can get into what measurement-based care is in a second. But what we do is we have a mobile app that automatically collects continuous clinical measures between appointments. Um, and with these measures, patients can actually stay more engaged, can become more active participants in their care. Um, providers also have better information to help guide treatment decisions. Um, and then through the assessments we deliver on the app, clinics can actually collect additional reimbursement revenue. So it's sort of this win-win-win uh, opportunity. Uh, so And so what is the origin of the company? What, what got you thinking about this, and, and, and what were those yeah. kind of first iterations of the company like? So the, the initial seed for the company actually goes back about six or seven years. Uh, one of my closest friends was struggling with uh, bipolar disorder. We were juniors at the University of Michigan. Um, he was getting help from behavioral health providers through uh, sort of the traditional routes, but unfortunately uh, took his own life. And so for me, that was sort of my first really exposure and awareness into this whole world. Um, didn't really have any awareness of it up until that point. And so the inspiration there was just over the next couple of years, starting to learn more, just out of curiosity, some of these different challenges, learning more about these illnesses, um, and then really started the company uh, in like late 2016. And the, the first uh, iteration of the, of the product, the company was actually called Joy at the time. We were building a chatbot that helped people track and improve their mood. So it was just consumers. There was no provider aspect. Um, I launched it just as a side project just because I was interested in building and wanted to see how people reacted. Um, maybe six months later, there was 30 or 40,000 people who had used that product. Um, and it would basically engage them in this daily conversation. So we would ask them once a day, hey, how are you feeling? Based on their response, we would analyze the conversation. We would continue to ask different questions. And then once a week, we would send back this report sort of quantifying their conversation, quantifying their well-being through that conversation. Um, and we learned a couple of really interesting things. Um, so maybe 12 to 18 months in, there was 100,000 people who had used it. Um, and what we saw is that the sort of kicker in the feedback loop was we would send this weekly report um, typically on Sundays. And that was always the, the day of the week that people would come back and check. And then if they checked, they would continue to have this conversation. So that was sort of the why on why they were tracking this stuff. Um, and the other thing we started to learn is that all of the top users were also seeing some sort of behavioral health provider, whether it be a psychiatrist, a therapist, a social worker, um, and some segment of those people were also actually screenshotting this report we would send them printing it out, uh, which isn't very easy to do, and then taking it to their actual appointment. Um, so at this point, we sort of stepped back and, and reevaluated that there might be a bigger opportunity here to get this information to providers in a more seamless, connected way. Um, so we started building that like mid-2018, launched late 2018, early 2019, um, and now have um, been adding providers to the platform ever since when we think about uh, about business and startups and and all of that uh, here you're in a little bit different space because you have uh you know I want to say social impact but it's even deeper you know you have you have a care-based app you have something with really high stakes attached to it with such a big social component are there different uh business considerations for you as a startup um as a founder when you're dealing with with a company that that has these kind of stakes and that has such a big social component to it, yeah, totally. I mean, I think even from just a purely a technical standpoint, we need to be really, really careful about the data we're collecting. We're a measurement 
based care application system. So we're by nature collecting a lot of information, but this information is really, really private. Um, and so we've got a, we did a lot of work up front to make sure that our systems could be end-to-end encrypted and, and sort of all that stuff that is needed um, to ensure this stuff is private. But also we want to be really um, thoughtful in anything that we do, whether it be small copy from a notification or how we ask questions um, because we're dealing with people who are, are struggling with different things, different illnesses, different disorders. And so our goal is to capture information between appointments so that a provider has that best information at the follow-up visit. Um, but we just have to be really thoughtful and, and um, consider a lot of different things that we might not have to consider if we were building a, the next social app or, or next video app, whatever it might be. Um, so it's a little higher stakes, a little bit higher consideration um, with every little product decision that we, we make. That's a conversation I had a little bit earlier today with Danny Freed, who's the founder and CEO of Blueprint Health, which is a, a really interesting organization. I, as I've said, I feel like I've learned so many things uh, on the show tonight <laughs> with so many smart people doing such cool things. And that's what's exciting to me is when when you see people using their skill set for for so much good and, and things like that leave such a, an impactful legacy in the world that I think is so exciting and cool. Uh, you know, there's sometimes there's there's a lot of dreary news in the world and it's easy to get bummed mm-hmm. out but then you, you talk to people doing stuff like this and it's even though they're they're fighting against and they're working to uh, fix things that are hard and scary and 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 difficult it, it's it's really hard not to be hopeful and excited about and and really energized by the work that they're doing so we're going to take a little break and we come back we'll hear part two of the conversation that I had a little bit earlier today with Danny Freed founder and CEO of blueprint health that's coming up here on 720 WGN Seven twenty, WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth on the Saturday Night Special, and tonight we have been talking about Chicago startups with social impact. And I keep saying this, but I feel uh, very inspired by by the work that I've been talking about tonight, and the people doing it, and just really cool things that we've been discussing tonight. And uh, I'm going to be sure and just tweet out links to all these things a little bit later, and uh, I'll share the podcast once it once it's up. And we'll have links to all these things and all these companies on the podcast page once it's up too, so you can you can find them, you can connect with them because they're all right here in Chicago and they're doing such cool things and such vastly different things. So right before the break, we were talking uh, with Danny Freed. It was a conversation that I had with him a little bit earlier today because he's a busy startup founder. He's got stuff to do. Uh, I talked to him a little bit earlier today by phone uh, about uh, his company, Blueprint Health. He's the founder and CEO. Let's listen to part two of that conversation. I want to back up now to where we started, and that was talking about the process and this kind of iterative approach and, and how this small, almost you know, micro-movements and micro-progresses are, are tracked and reported. And I wonder if you could could uh, elaborate on that a little bit of just what the process is like for someone using this app. Yeah. So we do three different types of assessments. Um, the first are evidence-based standardized assessments. These are sort of five to 20 question questionnaires that have been validated through research. Most clinicians are pretty familiar with these. Um, so an example is the PHQ-9, which measures repression symptom severity through nine self-report questions. Um, so that's the first type of assessment. We basically have a library of those. A clinician on our platform can configure which ones they want their patients to complete and on which interval, um, and we'll sort of automate the administration of it, scoring, documenting the results, helping them interpret the results, sort of that whole thing. 
Um, so that's the first type of assessment. The second type of assessment we do um, happens daily. We call it a daily check-in. Um, this is sort of like a quick capture of how you're feeling right now in the moment. Um, so it can be questions about your mood, your energy level. It could be questions about your sleep quality last night, how social you've been so far today. And then we can sort of pull different questions into a single check-in flow, again, configured by the clinician depending on that patient's diagnosis and what that clinician wants to track over time. So that's the second type of assessment. The third type of assessment actually happens all in the background. So through the app on the patient's phone, we'll pick up on exercise, sleep, and movement patterns um, using the sensors on their device. So we can do really interesting things like see how many hours per day someone's spending at home, how much time they're spending commuting, how many steps they're getting in on a given day, how long they're sleeping, how much time they're spending in bed, all these really interesting metrics that um, with context from these other assessments can actually be really, really powerful. Um, and the, the beauty is that we don't have to ask the patient about these things. We're just sort of collecting it in the background as they go, which is really nice. And so you're really serving a, a couple of different customers here at the same time. You're serving the the people seeking treatment for, for mental health care, but then also the clinicians. And I wonder, what is that balance of, in, from the business standpoint anyway, what is that balance of making sure you're you're serving both populations there and, and doing so well uh, that, that other business leaders might might learn from? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's hard to prioritize. We sort of prioritize working with clinicians. That's how we're reaching patients. But everything we do is also very patient-centric. So we're never only thinking about one. We're sort of thinking about how one can help the other or how one can provide more information to the other. One of the things that we pride ourselves on is that traditionally when a, a person's seeing a therapist, for example, or a psychiatrist, 99.5% of their time is going to be spent outside of the office visit. And so with our app, we can actually connect between those appointments. We can keep them more engaged and we can actually sort of extend the clinician's power and sort of scale them beyond just time available hours that they can bill for in a meaningful way. What is often misunderstood about this field when we're, when we're looking at mental health and the ways that technology can benefit it? What is that thing that when, what, that you hear again and again or the thing that every time you hear it go, oh, people just are not getting this? Well, I think one thing that, that's actually seemed to be get, seemingly getting better is that these are illnesses. Um, they're not something that you can just change overnight or just have the will to change. I actually think we're making good progress on that front. I also think we're making good progress on the sort of accessibility front. There's a lot of people focused on both of, both of these areas, reducing the stigma, making it more accessible from a geographical standpoint and a price standpoint. But I think one of the things that's been sort of overlooked is that Let's say we do a really, really good job of getting people into treatment. How do we make sure that treatment is actually effective? I think it's something like 70% of antidepressant medication fails on the first try. It's really this trial and error process. We don't really have good measurements in place to be able to improve on that number. And so that's what we've really been focused on. I think so a lot of times people hear sort of, you know, we're building a mental health platform or technology and someone will say, oh, how are you different than Headspace, for example? And we're really, really focused on very completely different problem than what Headspace is doing. I think sometimes people lump all those together and figure there's, you know, one solution that's going to win the entire space. But I actually think it's going to be many solutions that solve many different problems and together can move the space forward. And there's different kinds of that spectrum. For you, what have been the biggest wins so far? Maybe they're uh, a testimonial that was really meaningful or a big milestone with the business. But what have those looked like for you with Blueprint? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's lots of different small wins that we get 
from patients who are using our app and clinicians who are using our platform. For example, we've had patients reach out and say, hey, this actually makes my follow-up visit much easier. I wasn't able to really articulate myself. Now that I've tracked this on a day-to-day basis, I can actually engage in conversation in that visit. And so making a difference there has been really awesome. And then also saving provider time. They're, they're sort of underwater, um, which makes it really difficult for them to do what they love to do, which is work with patients and not take notes and administer these assessments. So by doing that for them, sort of automating some of the busy work that they have to do to do their job well, um, they can actually spend more time with patients. And so we're hearing some of that feedback directly. Another big milestone that we, we recently hit was we closed our first round of funding. So we've been bootstrapping this for since its inception, but we closed our first round of funding. I think we announced it in early April. So we're working with Lightbank and High Spark Angels, and they've been awesome partners so far. So that's, that's obviously a huge milestone as well. Sure. And, and what does that new round of funding mean for you in terms of what what's next and, and where you're putting those resources? Yeah. So, I mean, predominantly building out a team. For a while, it was just me. Started working with a clinical psychologist as well. So predominantly, it's building out that team. We're up to seven people total now. So it's been growing quickly. And then as we build out that team, using that team to grow our platform, continue building it out, and then expanding our reach, getting clinicians on board and enrolling their patients on our platform. And so on that note, where can people go to to find out more, both uh, clinicians and potential patients? Yeah, so our website is blueprint-health.com. And we've got all the information there. Clinicians can request a demo, um, and patients can download the app directly as well. Great. And it's free for patients, correct? Free for patients. Yes. Yeah, it's actually free for clinicians as well. We only charge a fee based on the assessments we deliver. So we've that first assessment type that I described, those are actually billable to most insurance plans. And so the way it works is clinicians can drive revenue through, through those assessments, and we will essentially charge a small percentage of that revenue each time they're administered. So there's really no risk for a clinician right now. And that's sort of our, our pilot program right now. Beyond uh, the immediate things with this new round of funding, in your mind, what is just the pie in the sky goal or the, the bigger, broader social impact that you'd like to see happen with Blueprint? Yeah, I mean, one thing we, we talk about and think about all the time is we're delivering a lot of these assessments that have been around for sometimes 20 years. For example, the PHQ-9, like I, I mentioned earlier, it's this nine-question survey. And while it's great, it's been validated, it's been researched, we think that we can probably complement that with other signals, other measurements, build basically a, a better way to measure behavioral health symptoms and treatment response to, to medication and other treatment modalities. We're really focused right now on making the, the current measures really easy to administer and, and get 100% of providers practicing measurement-based care. But if we do that well, we're going to be building up this data set that can potentially unlock some of those other interesting um, opportunities, whether it's us exploring those or partnering with other organizations who do research on this data or research on these measures and sort of enabling them as well. That was a conversation I had a little bit earlier today with Danny Freed, who is founder and CEO of Blueprint Health. And that is, uh, th- those are the founders tonight. Those are the four people that we talked to. I, I, if you've listened the whole show, I hope that you are also as inspired as I am. I am so inspired by the stuff that these, these people that we heard from tonight are doing. Um, you can find the podcast a little bit later at wginradio.com and I'll be sure and share it. And if you follow me on Twitter, I'll share links to all this cool stuff because I know I learned a lot. I, my mind's kind of 
of blown. I feel like I need a couple days to process <laughs> this whole show. We started with uh, we, we were talking about mushrooms and uh, mycocycling, mycocycle, yeah, really cool. which is unbelievable. That's so fascinating to me what she was doing with um, mycoremediation, which is a word that was not in my vocabulary. <laughs> I don't last think anybody's. <laughs> and and here, so you know, the theme tonight is here. Here is a. a a smart person that has this skill set and sees a, an opportunity, sees a gap, says, I've got to do something. And they just jump on it and they do it. And and, and I said this to to Sonny Tai, who's, who's co-founder and CEO at Aegis AI, when he was in the studio, uh, that it seemed like all of these things in his life led up to this coffee he had who, with the person who ended up being his co-founder. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that echoed through tonight. There were so many strokes of fate. I got chills so many times tonight thinking of... These really cool, smart people doing these totally cool things that make that, that will make a difference, that are already making a difference. Most of them are pretty young companies. Most of them are uh, other themes. They're bootstrapping it. They're very DIY. They're wearing tons of, hat them, tons of hats themselves. They're early in the process. They, they don't have tons of people. It's not like they got a, an army of people to help them there. It's like, I think Sunny said he had seven people. You know, there's, uh, you know, small groups of people doing these really impactful things. And I just think that's so inspiring and so cool. And it makes me want to go come up with a good idea. Darn it. I don't know what my big idea is. <laughs> But I'm going to think of one. I'll, I'll help you. Um, all of your fans came out tonight, Amy. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. The 815 says, I love when I turn on the radio and I hear you, Amy Guth. That's Exclamation nice. point. Thank you, 815. <laughs> I appreciate you. And there's another one. Okay. Um, from 219. Amy, great show as always. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thanks so much, 219. Well, Vivian, we're going to be back here on Monday. Yes, we are. We are going to be doing the Memorial Day special. That is 9 a.m. to 1230. That's a long haul. That's longer <laughs> than these two hours that we fill. So that's a long haul. But I'm going to be I'm going to have a, a really exciting co-host. And that is Mark Doyle. He is the founder of Rags of Honor. We're going to be talking all about uh, veterans issues. We're going to be talking about Memorial Day. It's history. We're going to be doing all kind of cool stuff. We have a really cool show planned. I'm super excited. So thank you very much to producer Vivian Lanou. And we're going to take a break, get you the news, all the good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN.